For our Bible study today, we are in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. If you have your Bibles turned there now, let me begin at verse 18. I'm going to read verse 18 down through verse 22. Mark, chapter 2, starting at verse 18. The disciples of John, and that is John the Baptist, and of the Pharisees were fasting. And then they came and said to him, that's Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. Let's pause there and pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. As we gather in your house, we pray that you would bear witness to this passage, that we might learn and grow and be challenged and encouraged in our faith today. And we thank you, Lord, for your presence among us. Where two or more are gathered, there you are in our midst. So we thank you, Lord. And we pray you'll be with us now as we open up the word together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Well, I am a, uh, a product of the 70s. I grew up in the 70s, and um, the 70s were an interesting decade of various things. Uh, musically, I remember Fleetwood Mac. How many of you remember Fleetwood Mac? Yeah, you can go your own way. That's all right. Um, the Bee Gees, Staying Alive, that was part of the 70s too. Uh, the Brady Bunch. And if you ever watch The Brady Bunch, that theme song is continually in your head for the rest of your life. And if you watch The Brady Bunch, you'll remember that back in the 70s, we only really had three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And, uh, you know, amazingly, for those of you too young to know this, you actually in that day had to get up to change the channel. (laughs) There's no remotes. If you want to get up, I mean, I was a human remote. My dad's like, go change the channel. So there there I was. Um, but, but that was the decade of, of the 70s. In terms of sports, the dominant sports team in the NFL was the Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh, okay, all right. Well, you're not saved. Anyway, uh, but that was the dominant sports team. Um, and, then, and then part of the 70s was Jimmy Carter and the gas crisis. How many of you remember the gas crisis? All right. Um, I asked in the first service, and people were nodding their head, that I was having a time trying to remember, but I think it was, and people said so in the first service, you could only get gas if it was an odd or even day based on your license plate. And so you'd pull up to a gas station, and if it was the odd day and you had an odd number on your license plate, I think at the end, uh, then you were good to go. And even then, it was only 10 gallons max. I mean, it was, it was a strange time in the 70s. And so because of, of all of that, it was also a thrifty time. People would tighten their belts, they would pinch pennies, it was a, it was a frugal, thrifty time. And so I remember uh, growing up in my household that there were a few, um, shall we say, budget-conscious rules uh, in order to try it as a family, pull, pull together and tighten our belts a little bit. And so we had two main rules that I remember. One was called the three-square rule, and one was called the one-knuckle rule. Three-square rule, one-knuckle rule, yeah, here's, here's how it went. Uh, 
when you needed to go to the bathroom, you were limited to three squares of toilet paper per use. Now, not the entire time you're in the bathroom, but, you know, per, per use, three squares, that's it. Now, I, I think, honestly, that was probably for my sister's sake, because nothing against the ladies, but listen, when you, got, when you wrap the p- toilet paper, you just wrap and wrap and wrap, you come out like a human Q-tip. It's just like crazy. <laughs> yeah, the ladies out there, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and then, so that was the three square rules. Per, per wipe, three squares. That's it. All right. And then there was the nu- one knuckle rule. What's one knuckle? When you fill up a bathtub, it can't exceed one knuckle, friends, on the depth. Now, when you're like eight years old, your knuckle's like a half inch high. And is that the low end by the drain or the upper end where it's not as deep? On the other end of the bathtub, but that's what it was around our household. It was three, three squares and one knuckle. One knuckle. Now, again, I think that was primarily for my sister. I mean, I'm taking showers. I don't really care how long I take a shower. But the one knuckle rule, that's what we had around our house, friends. Now, as part of this thrifty season of the 70s, one of the other ways that we were budget conscious, my mom would take me to buy jeans and corduroys in the day. That were way too long so I could grow into them. And I'm talking like six inches too long. You're relating to this whole thing, aren't you? I know you. It's like six inches way too long. And then you're expected to just grow into them over the next like 25 years. But what you'd have to do is when you first bought them and they're way too long, you'd roll them up. You'd roll them up, okay? But the problem is that year after year would go by, and as you grew, you would unroll it one, you know, one inch, and you'd unroll it. The next year, you'd unroll it again. So by like five years later, people could look at the rings on the bottom of your jeans and say, that, you've had that pair for about five years, haven't you? It's like cutting down a tree and figuring out how old the tree is. Count the rings. That's what people would do, looking at your jeans. And part of this time, when you're wearing one pair of jeans for like eight years, is that when you would go outside to play, you would actually get tears and holes in your jeans. I lived in the day when you would get tears in your jeans because you played outside. (laughs) Not like today. Where'd you get those torn jeans? Oh, I paid extra for those. Really? You didn't, you didn't cause that? No, 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 no. I paid extra for those tears, baby. Yeah, because some kid in a sweatshop in Thailand was ripping your jeans for you. You didn't get those because you're outside playing. So when I'd get these big holes in my jeans, my mom would iron on those waxy patches. See, if you're too young to know this, man, you've just been spared a lot. But there would be these patches that on one side was, had some kind of waxy, you know, adhesive. And so as, as you put it down and you would use a hot iron, it would like melt the waxy adhesive onto your pants. And then you'd walk around with patch, patches and rings. I mean, what a great look that was, you know. And after a few washes, those patches would start to peel. And they'd start to roll. And then your jeans are even worse now. So, I bring this all up because when I read this whole story about Jesus saying, you know, you don't put new patches on old garments. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. I'm thinking to myself, the patches and the garments thing, I get that because I'm a product of the 70s. I know exactly what he's talking about here. Now, what is he 
in essence, talking about in the context of our story. When he says here about garments, you don't take an old garment, put a new patch on it. The two materials are not compatible. The new patch will end up pulling away from the garment and making the tear worse. In a similar way, he talks about wine in wineskins. He says, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Now, back in that day, a wineskin was typically an animal hide that was sewn to be used as a wine vessel. And usually the neck of the animal is, is where the opening, after you sewed up you know, the rest of the body of, of the animal, you just had the, the leather, the hide, the neck of the animal is usually where the spout was. But the problem is that over time, a leather wineskin would become old and brittle and hard. And if you put new wine in an old wineskin, the natural fermentation of new wine would create an expansion and thus the old wineskins would break or burst. And Jesus says, and then, then you've lost the wine and you've lost the wineskin. He says, you don't, you, don't, you don't put a new patch on an old garment and you don't put new wine in an old wineskin. Now, why is Jesus saying all this about garments and wineskins? Because it seems an odd follow-up, in case you didn't notice when we were reading, to the original question that Jesus was asked, which was about fasting. And this question about fasting comes from some disciples or followers of John the Baptist and some disciples or followers of the Pharisees. That's what it tells us in the opening verses there. Now, it was usual in those days, it was common in those days, that a, a rabbi or a teacher or a religious leader would have followers, would have disciples, would have students. It wasn't unique to Jesus. We read about Jesus and his 12 original apostles or disciples, but that was not unique to him. Uh, every rabbi had a group of disciples or students or followers. Every religious leader had a group of disciples or students or followers. So that wasn't unusual. What is unusual in our story is that disciples of John the Baptist teamed up with disciples of the Pharisees to ask Jesus a question about fasting. Because you see, the disciples of John the Baptist were, were very pro-Jesus. John the Baptist was the one chosen by God to herald the arrival of the Messiah. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins too, so there was familial connection there. There was theological agreement there. And, and so they, the disciples of John the Baptist, very pro-Jesus, very pro-Jesus as Messiah. The Pharisees were not. The Pharisees were skeptics about Jesus. They, they would uh, mock Jesus. They would try to trap Jesus in his words. They were opposed to Jesus as Messiah. They didn't accept him as Messiah. So it, it isn't unusual that different people have disciples. What is unusual is that these two particular groups with their disciples came together for this question of fasting. And Jesus answers an initial um, statement here about fasting. This whole sermon is not going to be about fasting, but I only want to uh, uh, just summarize a little bit about fasting so we can shape the context of the whole conversation here. But for those of you taking notes, uh, biblical fasting is the voluntary abstinence from food for a limited period of time for the purpose of drawing near to God. It's denying the flesh to strengthen the spirit. That's basically what biblical fasting is. Uh, and, and the process of denying the flesh and strengthening your spirit, this is the reason why the Puritans used to call fasting soul fattening. 
Because it was a time when you would really build up your soul, build up your, your, your spirit. You would fatten your soul but in, in the process of denying your, your physical flesh. Uh, the, the idea, the concept, or the mention of fasting appears a little more than 65 times throughout the Bible. And by the way, um, I, I think it's okay, but it's not strictly the way that the Bible teaches fasting, but I think it's appropriate for people to look at their lives and to ask in general, what, what things do I engage in that are not necessarily wrong, but they crowd out my, my time with the Lord? Maybe I should fast from some of those things, not just food. Sometimes you might feel led to fast from social media for a short period of time or fast from TV and Netflix is taking too much of your time. Fast, uh, you know, you, you play too much golf, you know, you need to fast your golf game. You shop too much, fast, fast shopping, you know, and I only mention golf game and shopping because I don't like either and I'd rather convict you than me. <laughs> but but there are things that you can, that you can do to, to just, I'm going to carve out, this is t- taking too much of my time, I'm going to deny myself this, and I'm going to really draw near to God. So you can do like modified kinds of, of fasting in that way as well. But notice here in our, in our passage that initially when Jesus has asked this question, why don't your disciples fast, he actually downplays the need for them to fast. And he downplays the need for them to fast because, again, the definition is you deny yourself physical food in order to strengthen your spirit because you're going to draw near to God. Well, how much more can you draw near to God than when God's already there in your presence? And so because Jesus is walking among them and ministering among them, he says to the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees, my disciples don't need to fast because the bridegroom is here with them. And this is what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In other words, you can't draw near to God more than being in God's presence. There won't be fasting in heaven, in other words. Because once you're in the presence of the Lord, there's no need to draw near to him. You can't get any closer than that. However... The next verse, verse 20 in our passage, Jesus says, but the days will come... When the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So, the bridegroom, Jesus, has gone away. The Bible says he's coming again for us, the bride. And while he's away, it is appropriate, again, for us to fast. To, it's a spiritual discipline to strengthen our spirit. And once in a while, as God might put it on your heart, to, to go ahead and, and fast. So we're, because we're living in that time period right now. While the bridegroom is away. Now, a couple of quick things about uh, what fasting is not, and then we're going to move on to the, what I think is the, the bigger point of, of the passage here. But a couple of things what fasting is not. Fasting is not a Christian dieting plan. That might be the, the unintended consequence where you lose weight, but it's not a Christian dieting plan. It's not a ritual to show you're more spiritual. It's not intended to punish the flesh. It's not required. But it is encouraged and will be, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 16 to 18, will be rewarded. There's benefits to fasting. So that's all I really want to say about fasting because the truth of the matter is that that's not really what they were driving at. Uh, When these disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees ask Jesus about fasting, they're asking him a question about fasting, but it's not really about fasting. It's about tradition. Look again at what they say in there in verse 18. 
The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting, and then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, Jesus, do not fast? Translation, why aren't your disciples doing what we are doing? Because that's the way it's always been done. And so they're questioning him because he doesn't do according to their traditions a lot of the times. Now, there's nothing wrong with traditions, only when traditions supersede the Bible. And unfortunately, sometimes in Christian circles or religious traditions, people elevate traditions and they do things and they don't even know why they do it. They just do it because it's the way we've always done it. Okay, fine. And you might still want to do it. But what's the biblical basis for it? Well, I don't really have one. It's just the way we've always done it. Okay, all right. Not necessarily a bad thing. But you have to be able to look at some things and say, okay, why do we do this? So these different disciples are like, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? That's what we're doing. This is what religious people typically do. But again, they're challenging him because he's not living in their traditional way. And, and by the way, this isn't the only time. They will question Jesus about things like, why are you healing on the Sabbath? We're not supposed to do that. That's considered work. We don't do that. You're not playing by our traditional rules. Well, he's not violating anything. It's more needful to bring life and health to people than, than to, you know, abstain because it's the Sabbath and that would be like doing work. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're helping someone who's in need. That's not a violation of the Sabbath. Well, what, what about the fact that you, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? Well, washing your hands is a pretty good practice in, in terms of hygiene. But what they were talking about was there was a rit- ritualistic way of water purification. In certain ways you had to wash your hands and cups with two handles so you didn't contaminate and all this kind of stuff. And the disciples weren't doing that. And then they would ask Jesus also at times, why do you, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? We don't do that. That's not what you're supposed to do. See, all of this was, we're not, we don't do this. Why are you doing it? Or we, we do this. Why don't you do this? And so then Jesus goes into this last part of this section talking about new patches on old garments and new wine and old wineskin to really get to the underlying issue. Why didn't Jesus play by their traditional rules? I mean, was he just being a rebel for the sake of being a rebel? We know people like this, to be honest with you. They they just refuse to do something, not because it's wrong, but just because they want to flex their own independent uniqueness. Like, I'm not going to do that. Why don't you want to join? Well, I'm just, I'm not going to do that. Like, like they just want to like make a statement that I'm, I'm going to be different. Okay, fine. But Jesus didn't do this just to make a statement like he wanted to be different. What Jesus was doing here was he was trying to help them understand some of the things you do by tradition that are not necessarily biblical. And so he launches into this whole thing, look again at verse 21 and 22, where he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And then he adds, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskin. Listen, what he's saying here, and this is the big idea, Jesus didn't come to patch up something old. He came to offer something brand new. That's the main point that he's making here. So he's saying, I'm not going to just go along with traditions for tradition's sake, because I didn't come to just patch up an old system. I came to bring something new. Listen, this is the reason why we have an old covenant, also known as Old Testament. 
New Covenant, New Testament. Now, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He said, but to fulfill the law, because the old covenant was pointing to the new covenant in Jesus. So, let me just, by way of clarification of old versus new covenant, let me just point out a couple of things, and I'm going to go to the back screen on this, just so we can understand what Jesus came to do. You see, the old covenant was about man's way to reach God through the sacrifice of animals. The new covenant is about God's way to reach man through the sacrifice of a Savior, Jesus. You see this. Number two. The old covenant centered on man's faithfulness toward God. The new covenant centers on God's faithfulness toward man. Do you know that every other world religion besides Christianity places the emphasis on your ability to try to do enough good things to reach God? Christianity says because God knows that we are all sinful and we can't do enough good things to get to Him, He decided to come down to us to rescue us. That's why He offered Jesus as a sacrifice. The third thing is the old covenant was a performance-based religion between man and God. The new covenant is a grace-based relationship between God and man. And so these are big differences. And, and thus, old versus new. Jesus said, I didn't, I didn't come to just, you know, put a band-aid on the old system. I came to offer something brand new. But now listen to me on this. The same is true for your individual lives. And I'll, and I'll say it this way, and I'll put it on the screen. Jesus came not to patch up your old life, but to do something brand new in you. You see, sometimes people mistakenly think that coming into faith with Jesus is just ha- folding Jesus on top of your current lifestyle. Like, I, I'm just going to continue to to do what I do and live the way I live and behave the way I behave, but I've come to faith in Jesus, and now it's like just adding Him on top of your lifestyle. But that would be like an old, rotten, dilapidated fence that you think all all it needs is a fresh coat of paint. No, It, it needs something brand new there. And so this is what this is what Christ calls us to be about. You see, a relationship with Jesus is not about dressing up the old life, but it's about trading it for a new life. We're not to mix the old with the new. It's incompatible. Let me illustrate it to you this way. So I have a couple of uh, my, my favorite beverages here, orange juice and uh, cold brew, iced coffee. All right. And let's say that the orange juice represents your, your new life in Christ, and the cold brew represents the way you lived before you knew him, right? Now, they're both by themselves pretty tasty, including the way you used to live. Delicious, right? You say, well, that almost sounds unbiblical to say that the way you lived before Christ was tasty. No, no friends, friends, listen to me on this. A sinner's life is fun. Who are we kidding? When I hear Christians try to persuade non-Christians, you need to come to faith in Jesus because your life is miserable. Most non-Christians look at you and go, no, it's not. Smoking weed. Mm. You see, what, what we do is we, we try to treat the symptoms and not the core issue. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. 
People need to understand what you need is a heart change, a life changing relationship with Jesus. You, you can't try to convince them unless you hit them on a bad day when they're having a really bad day. And they're like, yes, I need Jesus. <laughs> Most people that you encounter who are living the high life, you're like, I'm going to get drunk on Friday night again. Mm-mm-mm. They're loving that. Sleeping around. Mm-hmm. Watch a little porn. Mm-hmm. Lie and cheat. Yeah, that's fun. Mm. Got a good grade out of that one. That's what they do. It's fun for them. They need to understand a, a heart change. You can't convince them based on, well, you must be miserable. No, we're having fun. Thank you very much. Leave me alone. That's the way they're going to respond to you. Then you come to know Christ, and it's like, oh, Jay, only Jesus. <laughs> and you, like, get up in the morning, and you're like, oh, I can't wait to read my Bible. <laughs> Mm. Oh, he has forgiven me. Oh, there's no condemnation now. Oh, free of shame and guilt. Mm, 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 mm. I'm loving that. Oh, that's tasty, right? And that's wonderful. And that's the way it should be. Here's the problem. And this is what Jesus is addressing. Sometimes Christians think they can just do this. See, that's like vitamin to vegemin. That is, that is, that's nasty. This is nasty. But this is, this is the way some Christians think. Oh, I can just kind of blend the old with the new. It's just adding Jesus to the way that I like to currently live. No, no, no. No, you've, you've missed the point. Jesus didn't come to patch up your old life. He came to give you something brand new. And this is what the Bible says along those lines. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, please hear me on this. That's not just a statement about how God sees you as a new creature in Christ, forgiven, loved, redeemed. That's also a statement about how God calls you to live as his redeemed children. Not blending the old with the new, but leaving the old for the new. This is a long passage of Scripture. I'm going to put it up on the back wall for you, and I'm going to walk you through it so I know it's long, but bear with me. Because in Colossians 3, this is exactly what Paul's talking about when he talks about, I want you to die to self and put off the old ways, and I want you to put on the new ways that are consistent with Christ. Don't try to blend the two. Jesus didn't come to put new wine in old wineskins. He didn't come to patch up an old life. This, this needs to be a putting off and a putting on. So Colossians 3, verse 5, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Now, this is New King James. That almost sounds like kill church people, doesn't it? (laughs) Put to death members on the earth. In the ESV or NIV, I think it says, you know, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's what it's talking about. Look at the list. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, before you became a Christian. That, all that stuff was natural. That's the way people live who don't know Christ. But rather than folding Jesus into it, he says, verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. And he lists a few things like anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Verse 9 
Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is basically no respecter of persons, neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, as believers, as disciples of Jesus, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Verse 14, but above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ, let God's word, the Bible, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen? Amen. This is how we're called to live. This is how we're called to live. Not to blend the old with the new, not to patch up the old life, but to walk in newness of life. Paul would put it this way in Ephesians 4, 22 and 24. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, the old person, man or woman, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and put on The new man, the new person, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, Jesus didn't come to patch up your old life. He came to make all things new. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you came to change us, to make us brand new in you. And we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. Because our flesh wants to still run the way of the world that we used to live in before we came to know Christ. Or maybe for some here who don't know Christ, that's, that's where they are right now. But you've come to set us free from a life of condemnation and from a life of shame and guilt, to find forgiveness in you and redemption and and to be recipients of your love and grace. And because you change our hearts, then, Lord, we also want to change our lifestyles to honor the one who changed our hearts. And it's not always easy. Because our flesh tends to gravitate towards fleshly things. So we need the strength and the power of your Holy Spirit to put off the old ways and to put on the new ways and to walk in newness of life as your redeemed children. For you have not come to patch up our old lives, but you have come to give us something brand new a new life in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to walk in that newness of life in a way that honors you and pleases you 
And every time we stray back to the things of the world, may you just quicken us in our hearts, speak to us gently to bring us back to a place of greater surrender. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you first loved us and gave your life for us. Help us, Lord. We're weak. We need you. And we trust you today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.